Welcome to the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. This is John. This is Blix. This is Trav. This is Amber. And this is Paul. Hello and welcome to the TriTac Podcast, your podcast for yanking other people's adventures for Fringeworthy and trying to make them work. Tonight I'm running the show. I've I've hijacked it from Bruce because our comrade is in Russia. This our comrade, he's in Mother Russia. <laughs> So uh, we decided that this week we are going to discuss remixing other adventures for Fringeworthy. So we're not going to get into depth on how to run an adventure in other settings. Uh, This is mostly how to hook your adventurers into those settings, uh, and especially for difficult settings. So if you've got, for example, an AD&D module that you have sitting on your shelf that you haven't used in forever and your players are kind of chomping at the bits to get into um, some kind of melee or fantasy adventuring, you can pull out one of your AD&D modules and we're going to tell you how to use that for Fringeworthy and how to, how to get the players into that. But I want to hit on some other genres before we run out of time. Yeah. Just, just, just to make sure we cover it. Paul, you had one you wanted to cover. Following along behind Robotech is my personal favorite, and I know you guys are burnt out on it, but I personally love the post-apocalyptic genres. I'm not burned out on it. I love them because they're high-tech and they're low-tech, that you can tease players with something that's high-tech and snatch it away from them. That you can introduce monsters with a plausible radiation or a plausible DNA tampering or plausible alien influence. You can take post-apocalyptic worlds and you can play with enough puzzle pieces to keep it fresh, or at least you can keep your players guessing. You can always take something and go, well, yeah, that was true for village A, but you're not in village A anymore. This is village B. Village B doesn't have that. And they're not friendly either. I like that. And the other thing I love about a, po- a post-apocalyptic genre settings is you lose something, you need something, you don't fill out Form 21B, go to the requisition officer, hand it over, and get a new one. If you foolishly expend it, you lose it, you shoot it all up, you throw it away, you trade it for booze, you can't have another one. Find a substitute. So, good post-apocalyptic genre game brings out aspects of characters and it forces them to use skills like negotiation, bartering, trade. It's a great game for your face character. That guy who steps up to the front and says, hey, nice to meet you. That's a great farm you got. How much for a loaf of bread and a wheel of cheese? Versus Always playing a game where everybody up front is always your bricks, your your heavy weapons healers, your fighters, and whatnot. The other nice thing about post-apocalyptic games is they're very heavily influenced by the scenery. There's a reason they're post-apocalyptic. Something happened. It smashed everything. Set the forest on fire. The oceans dried up, mountains fell down, the rain no longer comes, the sun burns like it's a million miles closer, and you can make the environment as much the big bad as you can as the warlord on in his fort on a hill. You can plague your players for days and have a great game where they just try to find a cool drink of water and something to eat. And you keep them on their toes as you make environmental rules. You make scenery rules. It's a preparation thing, though. It's, it's a lot of work for you as a GM. Pulled this off my shelf just now. 
Uh, I wasn't prepared to talk about this one. I, I just happened to have it in front of me. But it's the old Gamma World. I have the original Gamma World. I love it. The, yes. <clears throat> the module uh, Legion of Gold GW1 from 1980 is the date on this. I'm seeing a lot of really cool stuff in here that I would want to run. You don't get much more post-apocalyptic than, than Gamma World. Oh, yeah. Right. Moral Project. My inspiration for not tonight was to keep up with John and what we were doing in his Fringeworthy campaign. From TriTech Games' website, I bought the complete Fringeworthy C- CD. And as a little gimme on that disc, they give you a couple other fr- of TriTech Games' other lesser-known games. That included Rogue 417, which is a post-apocalyptic world that is in its dire straits because of disease. And if you've ever seen the world, the movie 28 Weeks Later, or 28, 28 Days Later, it was 28 Days Later before the author or screenwriter of 28 Days Later was born. And it is brilliant. Yeah. Actually, it's it's sort of it's sort of based on an old British TV series called the Survivors. In fact, if you if you've seen the Survivors, the setup for the for the series for that series, is pretty much the setup for what you see for Rogue Four Seventeen. Nice. Yeah. So it's uh basically there in Rogue Four in Survivors it follows a community of survivors from a, a plague that was created by some Chinese geneticists who uh, dropped a flask and then took a trip around the world. All right, so let's let's talk about this then. then how do we hook the adventurers in? Okay, so they, they go through the portal. They're in this post-apocalyptic world. Let's say they've traveled a little distance because they've, they've come out in, in like a ruined city. By definition, you are immune. Basically, any of the people from elsewhere are automatically immune to Rogue 417. Okay, all right, so, yeah, all right, so taking that. Okay, so that's fine. Okay. Because otherwise, it gets to be a really, really short game because this sucker is 98% lethal. Okay, so you come into this post-apocalyptic world, and a, a zombie worlds uh, qualify under this as well. But you're in this post, post-apocalyptic world. How do we hook the players into an adventure? Oh, the abject poverty and the fact these people don't have anything? Yeah. Okay, so hu- humanitarian aid, okay. So you show up and these people are starving. Depends on how many years later you want to set it. If it's in the first couple of years, they pretty much are looting every hot, every store, every every cash out there. If you set it like 10, 20, 30 years later, then it's a bit of rebuilding at that point. It also depends on the campaign you're running. You're playing on debt. Then it's all rainbows, sunshine, and unicorns, and you're there for humanitarian aid. If your campaign is you're the Coptics... You're there for a Rogue 417 sample, so you can clone it and work somewhere else. And fix it. Dark yeah. Fringe. Yeah. So, wait a minute. Hold on. If you're Victorians, you're there to, to bring enlightenment to the heathens. But, uh, let, let's be realistic. You're the average role player. <laughs> you're, you're the party of average role players. Oh, so Dark Fringe? What is an AD&D campaign? A bunch of sociopaths roaming the countryside, beating other people down for their gold. Right, exactly. So what I'm thinking is the points to bring people in. I, ha- I had a couple points I wrote down that are kind of generic. So you, you have a missing team or missing person. So let's say uh, you're sent there to find a missing team. A team, you know, team went to this this world. They were assigned to go to this world and then explore it and see what was there. Uh, they never came back. So you show up and you see this post-apocalyptic world, and your job is to go find out what the heck happened to that team. And then that way the game master can pull you into whatever adventure he wants to because he just gives you clues to state that they went here or went there. You know, they, they found something and they went to investigate it. Your game master can draw you away from the portal. Mm-hmm. Make you travel a distance. You can't just throw up your hands and run away. Right, but that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about how to get you into these, these pre-made modules that other games have made. So, for example, the, the Gamma World modules, they're basically about people just exploring. I mean, you know, this is old school D and D type stuff. All you have to do is say, "Yeah, team was here." Oh, they went to the I don't know whatever building or whatever hill, or, or some creatures came and took them, uh, and they went that way. They went that away. Some stalkers or prowlers. Right. You go to rescue them, and now, boom, you're in the adventure. Yeah, that's kind of a game mastering tidbit where you pick up 
as you've been a game master for a campaign, multiple campaigns, where you've played with the same players for a while, and you've kind of learned what motivates them, what pulls or pushes their buttons. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Your friend John may not care about the locals, but your friend Bruce has a bit of a softer side, and he always falls for the humanitarian aid mission. So you kind of maybe tailor your campaigns or your modules or you put a spin on NPCs and your plot hooks because you know that works on those particular players. It, it works for your home campaign. It's really hard to do for a, a con. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I, dude, I'm not even talking about con. Con, that's a whole different kind of game. In, in a con, you can make up just about any reason to send them on an adventure and What's what's the analogy for a con um, railroad tycoon? Yeah, the, right. No, it's called in media res. You, you, you know, we're going to skip over everything we're doing in a normal game, and here you are in 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 deep doo doo. Well, not only that, but I think when you go to a con, you set up you set up an adventure. People generally tend to go with it because they they already know if I don't, then what am I doing here? I'll just get up and go. There's nothing to do. This is the adventure. The guy's giving it to me. I can either do this or do or, or do nothing. Here's a tangential question for you guys that go to cons a while. Right. Have you ever done a multi-time period con setup? What do you mean? Where do you do Gen Con day one? You 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 got these people played paid to play day one. Gen Con day two. These people played to play day two. Where you kind of have a mini campaign of three or four days where you have four sessions. No, I've never done that, and and I've I've never done that because I'm always worried that I will not get enough return players, and it just won't work out the way I had planned. I just wondered because at cons you pay in advance, so I, you know when you pay for something, it's usually you're you've agreed to lock yourself in for it. When I'm a Monty Cook level, maybe I'll do that. Where people would be like, no, no, I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get in every one of these. You know, as as it is now, I'm not that guy. I'm not the guy that we're going to seek out. It's not the latest, hottest game. I, I can tell you right now, if you're running uh, new Fate Core games, you're going to guarantee to get the same people in like three or four sessions. Well, it kind of led me to that question, John. Is you mentioned that when you go to do Bureau Thirteen, you typically have the same people every con. Yeah, about the same three. I have the same core, three or four people. Yeah. So I'm thinking, you know, what is it? Emerald Con or one of those? Oh, Dragonflight is our. There you go. That's what three days. Can you convince them to play for two hours or four hours Friday, Saturday, Sunday? I know these people. I've come to know them very well. Hi, Dean. He plays Father Murphy all the time. But I also know they also like other games, and I've, and I've talked to them before, and many times uh, one of my games is, is, is set for the game they really, another game they really want to play. And they, and they, and they said they played one of my games, and they'll play one of these games. So they, they trade off. All right, so back to the... Yeah, off the tangent, I, I bring you to your regular scheduled podcast. <laughs> what is it that I say we're going to steer the good ship ADD back into Ridland Bay. So I'm thinking another uh, another trope I came up with for just about any adventure is setting up a home base. So let's say um, a first contact team has already been here. Let's say IDET has already been here and they've determined they want a base here. They need you to, to go there and set up a permanent location so that they can come back to this world regularly and have a safe, a relatively safe haven to go to. So that's always a nice thing to do. And and your base is in Central Ohio. I love that one. It's because Paul knows what I'm talking about. Because there's an there's an adventure actually set in Central Ohio that you can now get involved with in the in the in the uh, Rogue Four Seventeen game. Oh, <laughs> it could be anywhere. Like for example, the one I do called the Baron's Quest is a, a, a basically an AD and D adventure where the the party is hired by the Baron to go rescue his keep. His keep has been taken over by some some bandits who have invaded. And the reason why the party's there to begin with is because the first contact team has already made contact with this Baron, and he's ready to negotiate terms with IDET for setting up permanent setup. In the meantime, by the time the team gets back, the Baron, his keep has been taken over by some uh, bandits. He offers the party, instead of negotiating with him, he says, look, I'll just give you whatever you need. 
I'll give you a piece of land. Uh, I'll, I'll give you servants to take care of it. I will equip your people with food and supplies whenever they come here. If you just go get these bandits out, out of my keep. It's a little more complicated than that, but, but that's basically the setting up a home base type adventure hook. I love it. I love it. I love it in many ways. And you know what? It takes our listeners right back to the episode that just dropped colonization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why are we here? Why are we building an encampment? And what does this bring to the table? What what is this what purpose does this serve? Right. If you want answers to that one, go back and listen to colonization again. Sure, sure. I mean, and, and that's a good trope to use. I mean, because I did always I mean it's one thing I did always needs. I mean, if they're if they're gonna explore these worlds and they're gonna go back to them regularly. A home base is essential because you can't come through that portal every single time and not know what you're going to find on the other end. Because like, oh, we've been here before. It's like, yeah, but when we go through it this time, you know, who's to know who's controlling that area? And then we got to go sneak around. And if you've got a place where you come through and the guys know you when you come through, like, oh, those are the weirdos that come through that thing. Uh, yeah, their cabin is over there. It's a whole different setting. It's so comforting to your players to have somewhere they can pop in and they got a first aid station. Right. They get a dentist. Right. They can exactly. fuel up the vehicle. Food, water. Then they invest a lot of the locals to set up shop around the place. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're a great GM, that colonization world, that supply cache, that friendly place is a plethora of on the spot. Oh, it's Friday. I'm supposed to GM. I don't have anything. Hey, you know what? You guys go back to Portal 47. You're having a cold beer and a cheeseburger because you're tired and you're sick of MREs. But hey, some dude kidnapped your favorite barmaid. She's gone and there's a ransom and the cook is frantic and you don't have your cheeseburger. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Suddenly you you got an adventure and you just pulled it out of the air. And and not only that, but but there's going to be NPCs at that base station that can pull you into adventures. Like you're saying, maybe one of the guys has been fancying the waitress, you know, that's at this inn that you guys are staying at, or that you that you frequent when you go here. He's become friendly with her. He's making some distance. You guys show up and they go, oh, where, where's such and such? Oh, she was taken by such and such. It's like, oh, there's your adventure because you know your one player that's been making way with her is going to be like, oh no no no, this ain't going to do. Adventure is is hook you know hook line and sinker. Of course, you're paying for that cheeseburger in barter, so you're you're either handing over something that they need, maybe medicine or something like that, or heck, even fuel. I mean, there's no oil wells anymore. Sorry, folks. I mean, they're all gone. <laughs> when you're a GM and you've got these worlds and your players invest some time in them, always take notes. Always keep those little inconsequential non-player characters on a note card stored somewhere because you can use them, you can bring them back and you can use them against your players and you can suck them into an adventure before they, they knew what they signed up for. Yep. We did a whole episode on this, didn't we, John? Um, on NPCs and, and Trav? Yeah. yeah. On how to use NPCs, like like, like what you're talking about, um, Paul. You want to utilize them as much as possible because... Many times your NPCs are your hooks to every, you know, I mean, you can use NPCs for hooks to adventures constantly. Oh, absolutely. I totally agree. And that's the beauty of mining these other modules. Like, like, you know, the topic for night is, you know, here's these games, these modules. You had, you had the barrier peaks you had from Gamma World, stuff like that. Strip those NPCs out of them, change their clothes, give them a new hairstyle, bring their equipment up to date, use them again. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, you can turn a simple module into a complete campaign arc, or you can just use a simple module as the backstory and then use the NPCs from that thing to create something totally different because it's Friday and you got to wing it. The guy who was supposed to GM tonight got the flu, his car wouldn't start, or it was unscheduled overtime. <laughs> Excuses from the Blues Brothers. <laughs> Garden search. <laughs> it wasn't my fault. Hey, Pip, you want to chime in on this? And I got, I got one for you. Let's say you're playing, and your, and your game master is setting up one of these situations that we're talking about, and it's obvious railroading, but it's fair. I mean, you know it's railroading. You know he's got a module he wants to run. 
he's created this situation where you're like, oh, I get it. This is the hook where we have to go do this adventure. It's not always able to be hidden. You know, he's, he's got the D&D module in front of him. What are kind of things that, that you could see that you would do as a player to realistically resist it? You know, your, your characters wind up here. An NPC, let's say the barmaid has been captured, and one of your, your game mates wants to go off and, and rescue uh, this poor damsel in distress. Am I allowed to get drunk and try and seduce the barmaid? Sure, sure. But I mean, like, like if, what, what if co- I'm too drunk that I can't even totally yes, but I'm going to encourage you. If, if I am, if my character is too that. drunk that I can't be a competent party member, then I think that would be kind of a a little roadblock. I mean, just just to mess with the game master, just to keep him honest, and you know, like, okay, well, I'm gonna, you know, oh yeah, the bartender was 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 taken away, and you're like, oh yeah, okay, right, the bartender was taken away for the fifteenth time, you know, so so that we'll go on this mission. Yeah, that's one of the ways that you would give him a hard. The biggest thing is make the is make the characters personal. Give them a name, give them a personality. Make sure that when they stop and stop at uh, at at the you know Portal Forty Seven in Ohio. They go to Joe's bar because Joe's a great guy, and he's and he and his alcohol won't kill you because he didn't use lead solder for his distillery out back. Right. You know, right? <laughs> Portal plus zero zero one, the idea at bar and grill. Right. That's not an allusion to ninety nine percent of all AD and D adventures beginning. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, but hey, you know, you you, you want to go someplace to get some food, food, drink, you know, someplace to put your feet up. Hey, hey, GM, my bags are full of all of this armor and these weapons and these utilities, but if we're going to go on this mission, we need food. <laughs> Do you expect yeah. me to eat grass? No. No, we have MREs. Yum, yum. <laughs> you know, and I was going to say another, you know, another trope to get to get players involved is if somewhere along the line, you know, people are talking about things that are going on, you know, and the players are kind of like, yeah, 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 whatever. Okay, great story. You know, nice story, bro. And uh, at some point, someone goes, yeah, and he had this really amazing blue crystal thing. It was like, it was four-sided. And then everybody goes, what? <laughs> you know? And then that's where, you know, you could get the players to buy it. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Did you say something about a blue four-sided crystal? You know, that, that's a way to draw people in because they're like, oh, sh- crap, especially if it's a higher level than they've seen. What's also what's nice about uh, Rogue Force 17, it's also a Bureau 13 world. Mm. Yeah, oh, Bureau, really? that, that does have a Bureau 13 there helping in the, uh, the relief effort. It may not be an IDET agent who wants to go out there and do things. It may be a Bureau agent who came along for the ride. Oh, I didn't know that. I ne- Actually, I never knew that. Might be a bureau agent looking for a supernatural cure. Yeah. Or dealing with with all those ghosts. All those ghosts. <laughs> Eight billion people on the planet, and 98% of them are gone. They just don't know it yet. <laughs> but, okay, Bureau 13, all Mr. True. Is that true for the Rogue 417? Because holy water works. Yeah. It's the same universe. Yeah. Is it on the same node? Rogue Force 17 is an alternate. Let me look. Talk amongst yourselves while I look it up. This is a great time to plug it, though, because I'm going to come back to Rogue Force 17 because if you're running if you're running a game and you're running Thursday, Friday, Saturday night game and you suddenly, suddenly find yourself as the GM, Rogue Force 17, with all its very intricate interrelated tables that you just need... Two die ten to roll D one hundred on saves your bacon. When the players ask you dumb questions, um, I go in the room. The room appears empty, but there's a bed and chair. So I search the room. What do I find? You roll percentage to see if they find anything. You roll on the table if they do, and you find this piece of minutia. It can save you from burning out your brain cells. Oh yeah. And then there's, you know, there's myriads of tables for, even if you don't roll, you just slide your fingers down the wrist and slide your, your index finger down on a number and go, okay, it's tech level this, or this level of technology is retained. They've regressed this far. Richard did a really great job with all of those tables that just the level of detail running through Rogue 417, you don't find in some games these days. People just don't have the patience to put something like that together. 
splurge on the complete fringeworthy CD to get Rogue 417 in Invasion USA for nothing other than the tables in the back just to help you put together your own campaigns or your own modules or to, instead of just having vanilla ice cream tonight, you're going to put sprinkles and a cherry on top using these other tables, these other materials. Folks found it. Positive 7, 7 is Rogue 17 Earth. Positive 7, 7. It's an alternate. Ah. Yes. But it is... It, it says in the module that Bureau 13 works on that world, so it, it is a parallel reality of Positive 13 Prime. It's yeah. just on this alternate, Rogue 417 happened and society yeah. worldwide collapsed. Yeah, the, the GM made this roll, like make three rolls. He rolls up furniture, building supplies and lumber, and ooh, canned food. You know, you're going, wow, okay. <laughs> And depending on, on, and also I think it has tables in here. So okay, how many years has this food been sitting here? Yeah, because there's rules for that too, whether it's still fresh or not. <laughs> and it's it's a beauty because we're saying, you know, how to take this game that's from a completely different game system and adapt it to one you're familiar with, where either you're going to use you're going to take Expedition to Barrier Peaks, which is a Gamma World or Star Frontiers game, and turn it into something you can use with AD and D. Whether it is medieval Greyhawk, and you're going to pull in characters from Fringeworthy who are from the year 2010, and and they're familiar with computers, electronics, and the Holy Grail of all gods, indoor plumbing. (laughs) Right. But don't think that just because you pulled a module off the shelf, you got to use the story and the plot line from that module off the shelf. Mine the module for the tidbits, the backstories, the encounters, the unusual monsters, the encounter tables, the random find tables. It's just the map. If you use nothing else, take the map. Here's a oh, village. Yeah. 417 has a way that includes rules for rolling up villages and so forth and, and survivors. You know, So you're on a devastated world. You can roll up you know, on a, on a little hexagon square in a little hexagon. What's there? Who's survivors? What, what, what are, they, are they friendly? Are they you know, are they you know, under a warlord? What are, with a couple quick rolls, you can actually have your storyline ready to go. Yep, yep. That was the whole point of this this exercise was to <clears throat> to just figure out how you can take this stuff that because I mean let's face it, everybody loves a pre printed module. You know, it's it's awesome and 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 that's really the the greatest draw to Frenchworthy and why we've been playing it for my group my the the group I play with been playing it forever. Because you literally can just pick up modules from any you know any genre, and your fringe worthy characters can wind up there. You can wind up in Deadlands. You can wind up. It, it doesn't matter anywhere. The hard part is is taking a module that's been written for characters in that in that genre and trying to you know trying to put Ident Explorers into it because you know they 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 have a specific mission that they're doing. I mean. You could always play Fringeworthy as guys who are just traveling the pathways and, and don't even know what IDET is. You know I mean, you don't have to start with IDET. You could just be playing. You found a magic portal. Right, yeah. Yeah. You can always do that. You fall back to the original game premise. Are you IDET? Are you Victorians? Are you the Golden Horde? Are you Coptics? What is the original reason for you coming together and walking through that portal, and why are you going to do it? Mm-hmm. The campaign I had, it was a bunch of superheroes that were augmented by Tremeller technology, and they now protect the world from stuff that comes through the portals. They're okay. fringe-worthy. It's just that they, they're not eye-dead at all. So, yeah, I mean, fringe-worthy doesn't always have to be eye-dead. Yeah. Yeah, you know, for the longest time, we actually played, uh, we played cyberpunk characters who had found the fringe path. Talk about a bunch of uh, pirating, <laughs> opportunistic. Uh... Oh my God! So you play a fringe pirates game? Yeah, we did. We did, and we we were some bad mofos. We were some bad guys. But you see, where as a GM that influences the module or what you take from module, or or you really play with them and you take three modules and you make a mishmash and push them all together. That's true. Take expedition into the barrier peaks, march a little night city with it and steal from the Robotech universe the masters and you push a Robotech masters repair bot through something from the uh, Robotech factory. 
or it's an AD&D world with a crashes and trotty ship on it. Exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It's like Pathfinder, then, Numeria. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, no, I mean, I think, uh, you know what you're saying, John, is that, that barrier, you get into barrier peaks, you start going through it, and what is running that spaceship? Uh, protoculture. Yeah. You know, and that's your next clue to go to the Robotech world. Maybe there's some something in there. That could, let's go after the systems. I, I think I know where this ship is from. You make the Greyhawk, this, and this would be a good thing to do. I mean, I would advise anyone to do this. If you're going to have a d you're going to have Greyhawk, that has to be the prime. You could have different alternates of different D&D type worlds for your alternates. And then for your system, that's where you could have like where the mind flares are from and you could have, you know. If you have your system, you have spell jammers. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. But the nice tie in there is that the robotechnology, the protoculture, because it allows machines to work as if they're an extension of a human, means why your illiterate human warrior finds it easy to pilot cyclone power armor oh sure so you don't have this well you're a barbarian and you can't use it right it's just a suit of armor he puts it on and it runs because he knows how to move i have the heavy armor preference i can wear this you know proficiency i can wear this well yeah (laughs) with technology and greyhawk remember the only people that could use firearms were the paladins of merlin because they were based on the merlin gunfighter I had a problem with, well, tech doesn't work in this world at all. They're at a medieval, yet a, and the gods decree that nothing works, yet here's this starship. Protoculture would be a very good reason why. We're working weapons. Mm-hmm. Right. These are pistols and all that. Just say it's protoculture. Yeah. No, 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 no. They're not pistols. There's just some strange devices. Whoever it was, we're not, we're not human. At least I don't think they're human because some of the weapons are just downright bizarre in, in their layout. Oh, yeah, I remember the... And they have flow charts and how to use them. Oh, yeah, I remember. <laughs> and, you know, if, if you don't want to do... You don't want to do Robotech, but you kind of like the idea of what we're talking about here. I mean, you, you could always do a, um, like, a, what was it, District 13? That's a good movie. You could do something like that. That was a fantastic. I love that movie, but you you could do something like that. You, you know they had uh, they had mecha and they had uh, advanced weaponry and stuff like that. And there's no reason. And and they seem to have some kind of biological uh, thing going on with their weapons. You want you want a nice sci-fi and AD and D tie-in? Take the second movie Aliens and tie it into the AD and D universe. Ooh, your people on our holy crusade to keep the village from being eaten and converted into more aliens. Can you imagine you put alien eggs in the barrier peaks? Ooh. <laughs> oh, that would be mean. I like yeah. that. Wow. A mind flayer Geiger alien cross. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, well, and the well. hook to that adventure is, oh my God, we've got to save everybody. <laughs> we have to save the world. Or, or no, or, or they get into the spaceship and it's, oh my God, we got to save ourselves. Let's get the hell out of here. We got to nuke this place. We got to overload the engines and just make it, just make a smear on this in the landscape. <laughs> but the point there is you, is the players think they're on one sort of av- adventure and you've blended two or three modules together and suddenly they're like, everything just changed. Or what I thought I knew, I didn't really know. You start with Barrier Peaks. They run into the robots, they run into those things, you do the adventure, they go, yeah, bury your peaks. Then they find the acid-melted hole in the floor. And they assume gelatinous cube or something stupid from the D&D world. Then they find a body that's been webbed to the wall and his chest has burst out. Yeah, you know what you do? You take that. You take the section, if you guys are familiar with Barrier Peaks, you take the section where you have the web birds. Yeah. And you turn that into the egg-laying facility. Yep, that's where mothers live in. Because that's near the end of the adventure. I wouldn't have a um, queen alien at this point. I just had the the field of eggs. Yeah, that's okay. That's fine. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But yeah, like like is it in the what LV four twenty one or LV four twenty six? I believe. It's a, okay, where they they get inside the ship and there's there's no queen yet. There's just a, a whole bay of eggs. They walk in. Uh oh, I know what that is. <laughs> If you've got those PCs and no, sorry, non-player characters that have made your party too powerful, 
Mm-hmm. Or the party has become to rely on that non-player character too much, and they're sort of autopiloting themselves and letting the GM tell the story and make the decisions through non-player characters. Oops. They got a tummy ache. <laughs> Stick a face hugger on him and get rid of him. And let's not forget, parasites can make it through the portals. Oh, yes, that's right. That parasite is taking over a bodily function such as the heart, lungs, kidneys. It's, it's not going to be removed by the portal system. Ooh, parasites again. Yes, parasites are... Well, it depends on whether or not... Okay, yes, the facehugger is not intelligent. Now, I would say aliens, though, are probably intelligent. Therefore, they probably won't be able to go through. But the facehuggers can. As an egg? Yeah, as an egg or, or, or as an attachment. Hey, I think I think the implanted embryo thing, I think that would go through. Yeah. It's infant. It's not hatched and fully yeah. cognizant yet. Oh, God, no. It'd be worse than that. Oh, it'd become fringeworthy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, nice! You're evil. At least it's gonna be a drone. It won't be a queen. It'll be a drone. There's your, there's your whole other campaign <laughs> arc. Remember what you said yeah. drones become queens. Uh no, I think there was probably a special egg for that one. No. Well, guess what just happened? Ooh. <laughs> or you know what I've noticed in the games? In with without the presence of a queen, one becomes a queen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I, th- I I think so. I think John. I think that's the case. I think if a drone is left alone, if he's isolated, he becomes a queen. No, no, not him. Her. Her. Well, yeah. Okay, right. I'm sorry. You're right. It. Yeah. It becomes. It. It becomes a queen because I don't think there's because they, they 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 breed asexually, so they they don't need a guy. They do it all by themselves. But, right. Particular to the fringe where the universe is the fringe pass and the filters. Yeah. Technology of a certain level doesn't make it through. Viruses and parasites and some of that doesn't make it through. You can't slip plutonium through. You can't slip some totally planet erasing uh, weapons through. Any matter gets turned into matter. Exactly. But what what is completely dangerous and absolutely unaffected by the French worthy parasites. Parasites. Biological weapons. Yeah. yeah. What is an alien? A biological yep. weapon. What is the most dangerous that could come down the fringe pass if it was fringe worthy, especially universally fringe worthy? Oh, that would be nasty. What would your IDET players give up to stop that? That would be that would be tough. Uh, I can imagine woman, you know, taking the key at the portal and, and, and on the on the plant side, locking it down, then finding a rock. And see if he can break the key. How much would Six <laughs> give to use that as a weapon to completely subjugate an insurgent node? It will work just as well as it did in the movies, which is not at all. Trav, Trav, the Coptics would try to use it, wouldn't they? Yeah, and it worked just as well as it did in the movies, which is not at all. What uh, <laughs> Coptics try to use the Xenomorph? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. They can have fun with that. Yeah. <laughs> But they would try, wouldn't they? Yeah. I, I mean, recognize the feminine scream of panic anywhere. That would be the Coptic army running from a xenomorph. <laughs> <laughs> Remember how adaptive they are. A face hugger on a blizzness. Hey, get it off! Get it off! <laughs> a xenomorph, however, they don't make great armies. They're the, the ultimate guerrilla warrior, though. Yeah, there's an army of xenomorphs, they get mowed down. Because they have no weapon other than their own abilities. They are, they're ninja gorillas. Right, but carrying it back to, to you know, the, what it is tonight, it was, a, it was a module, and you've got to challenge your players sometimes to not just be a team, but to be generals. Yeah. Sometimes they get to step up and go, you know what, I'm the best person to solve this problem, and I'm going to go ahead and do it. Yep. Yep. This is where you take something from a module and you take them, well, you know, we're just going to go beat over the troll and take his gold to, oh my God, I've got to rally the village together and we have to search house by house. We got to man the walls. We got to stock the food and we got to, there's a million things to do. Right. Wow. Are they really, really, really suddenly invested when they're like, oh man, I'm the mayor. I'm the sheriff. I'm the post office. You can make it almost an emotional meltdown for them if they lose the village. Especially, you know, especially if they've made friends in the village. Oh, yes. Exactly. I mean, there's a scenario in the Rogue Force 17 that if you don't do it, do things right, 
Yeah, you gotta lose the village and everything within about twenty miles of that village. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, I remember what it, the it, cost of that would be. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So hey, I think we've uh, we got a pretty good show here, or maybe more than one show here. Uh, let Let's wrap it up. Is there any uh, any final thoughts? I'll I'll start it out. I would. I'm gonna um. I'm got, we didn't talk about it a whole lot, but we mentioned it before. Uh, don't ever forget that you can switch bodies. You can do the whole body switch thing where if, if the adventure is very difficult, if it's a module that's very difficult to get people into, this is not a trope you want to use more than one or tw- once or twice. But you can always have the people go through the portal. When they get out on the other side, they find that they are actually in another party's bodies. And for whatever reason, you know, you you can link them into the adventure that way. Perhaps it's just for fun. They're going to go on this adventure because it's it's going to be fun. You know, they're they're playing some party, maybe a maybe a uh, a team of pirates or something, something they've never done before, and then it'll give them the freedom to do things they can't do as IDET members. As far as we know, who cares if they die? If if the body dies, the soul or whatever the presence transfers back to the portal where their where their body is. That's always an option. So don't forget that one. Also, don't forget the time-locked theme that you can use where they go through the portal and they can't go back through for a period of time, so they're stuck there and they get looped into an adventure because if they sit around and do nothing, they won't survive. Yeah. And also, don't forget, you can use what I, I, call, I usually call the white rabbit. as you know, It's something to draw the characters in, you know, something that they need to explain, and that can also sometimes draw them into the adventure. You know, it's it could be as much as much as you know. They step through, they do their scan, and depending on which module. I mean, I actually have at least three different versions of Wonder of Wonderland. I could easily have a white rabbit run right past me, going, "Oh my dears and uh, stars and garters, I'm late, I'm late, I'm late," and run right past them, going, "Okay," <laughs> and see how they take that. <laughs> right. You know, or you can have other other hooks. The hook in most of these ventures are you're in that universe, and you're part of that universe, but you're playing people who aren't part of that universe. You need to find a hook to get them involved with the adventure at that point, which is which is the biggest thing. The biggest, yeah, the biggest part of this is is taking, is linking up your IDET explorers to the very start of this module. Once you get that in play, once you get the the players to hook into the very beginning of this module, there's not a whole lot of work after that. You just run the module. Yeah. You know, the little nuances that you have to put in there will, will play themselves out. The players will actually handle that for you for the most part. What do you think, Paul? Any other ideas? Any last-minute thoughts that, that we should think about? You know, I, I'm leading towards, you know, feeding the GM seeds to make their garden grow. That modules are a source to be stripped mined. Close your eyes, pull five of them off the shelves, and start randomly flipping them side your hands down. Steal the encounter tables. Steal the non-player characters. Steal the maps. Take plot seeds. So you have Expedition to Barrier Peaks. It's been an AD&D module for a great deal of time, and people know what we're talking about. They just heard the words and said, oh, I know that part. I know, oh, I know how to open that door. Right. Give them something from Cyberpunk where they need to incorporate an AI and do a little hacking and encourage this AI with treats to unlock doors for them. That using the plastic card keys, right? I think it's a very good point about about the about the ship. If you look at all the all the robots, they're all humanoid. They're all human. It's a human ship. It, that means it's, it's you might be actually able to hack the computers. Yeah, of course. I mean, because when, when Barrier Peaks was written, I mean, th- there was no other adventures out that had anything like net running or anything like that. I mean, you can swipe that right from Cyberpunk. If you're the game master, follow other games down dark alleys, smack them over the heads, and go through their pockets. <laughs> <laughs> I've taken to the term remixing adventures because I mean that's essentially what you're doing. Like you're taking a song, you know, like when DJs take a song and they remix it. I mean, that's what you're doing. Yeah. Well, it's like Jay says, there is no plagiarism in role playing. Rub off the serial numbers and use what you can. Right, right, exactly. Take Sherlock Holmes and put it in the year 2013. What do you think, Amber? I like pie. (laughs) 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 No, is there anything, like, you know, even from a player standpoint, is there anything that Game Masters should consider when they're trying to entice, trying to get players to buy into this, you know, the the, the French travelers travel to this new world, 
there's some kind of adventure going on that normally they wouldn't really care about because it's, it hasn't been written for a fringeworthy team. Is there any kind of things that, that you as a player would need to jump into this? What would be the carrot on the end of your stick to get you to get into the adventures or any points you'd want to make on that? Carrot on the stick for me would be context. Not even so much context, but enthusiasm. If my GM is just sitting in front of me reading in a deadpan voice, I'm going to be off in my own little world, doing my own little thing in my own little head. But if my if my GM actually presents that they're enjoying what they're doing, I'm more likely to stay engaged because... I want to pick up on not just what they're saying, but any physical cues that they might drop also. Okay, so you want you want a lot of flavor to it. So the, the Game Master has to get his head into the adventure and say, all right, this is the adventure. I, I completely understand it. I know what's going on. I got a feel for the world and how the people how the people interact in this section as to what's going on. Well, not even so much that, but like you were saying with the um, the four-sided blue gemstone or whatnot, I don't want my GM sitting there saying, okay, the mission is to find a four-sided blue gemstone. I want my GM to be like jumping out of his chair going, okay, this is what you need to find, guys. And he kind of beckons you all closer because it's super, super secret. And he, he makes you participate, not just re-deadpan. He... he actively keeps your attention show the story not tell the story yeah I mean, right uh, yeah yeah all games have sections in the in the area that says london home of vampire the mighty metropolis of more than what six million souls screw that so you're in london there's people everywhere and you know this is victorian london look at that the people here are dressed you know dressed funny except for the victorians they're dressed and careful where you walk because they don't have working plumbing <laughs> right. <laughs> Make sure you you paraphrase all the the stodgy texts in the adventure. I want to punch someone every time they're reading something from a D and D module or something, and they're like, and there are certain frescoes on the wall. It's like, oh god, just it's a it's an ornate room. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Unless of course the frescoes are important, right? No, no, they they never are. It's just. Some of those settings are made for a William Shatner dramatic reading. Right. It's 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 a Tolkienish description. And there on the walls are the frescoes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, John. Oh wait, this is a clue because he's talking about the frescoes on the wall. He hasn't mentioned it once for every other room in this place. So these are important. And then you yep. find out it's nothing but a red herring. They just put that in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing I'm going to tell, you know, new game masters or people who are like, who bought the rule book and then their friends are like, great, let's do it. Take notes and that any single adventure, just because you threw it on a Friday night, it looked great and you want to try it out. It's a campaign jump off. Take notes. Keep your, remember who you use for your NPCs and where you were going. Use it against them. Well, not only that, but if you do a good job, if you do your job well, they're going to want to come back to this world. Actually, oh, yeah. do like I did for one game, which is I sat down and I found a random name generator. And I generated, this is for the uh, the Mongol game. Uh, we, I ran with my fringe folks. I generated a whole bunch of names. So I was going along, who is this person? Uh, blah, 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 blah. And, and then put and wrote down who that person was. So I now I kept track of who, who was who because I had these random names <laughs> to work with. And you know another thing I, I like to do is I get the the baby books and I'll, I'll like put in uh, I'll say uh, French name baby you know French French baby names and you would believe that's the greatest resource that, that Google search is the greatest resource for finding names for like to get a flavor of names. Well, some months ago I went through um, the birth and death records for several counties in England. And I basically copied all the first names, all the last names, and I put them into an Excel spreadsheet, and I put them up on the fans of the Fringeworthy Tri-Tech Games podcast thing there. So if you're GMing and you're going to find yourself on Victorian Earth of vanilla, Napolitano, chocolate, whatever flavor of English Victorian worlds, you could roll two dice and come up with a name real quick for NPCs or player characters. And the birth and death records gave you authentic names that were period correct. I pulled the, all the 1890s together. Mm, okay. Cool. It's an Excel spreadsheet. Excellent. So, uh, Trav, was there anything you wanted to add? 
Wow, I think you guys pretty much covered everything. I think this is another one where we we beat the subject down to where we can't beat it. No. Well, I think there's what there are a few exceptions, but for most modules, they're on rails. Yeah, they'll have plot coupons you have to collect to be able to complete the adventure. There are some out there are sandboxed, but they're really not because there's still there's still rails, but they're sort of hidden. Because if you go off and you play in the sandbox for a while, bad things happen. Because you didn't follow the rails. Keep on the borderlands. <laughs> yeah. Right. Basically what it boils down to is, is that Fringeworthy is a, is a great system uh, because you can go anywhere and you can do any kind of adventure. And that opens up the ability to use pre-made adventures for anybody's game anywhere. You know, So you have a, a massive amount of resource because you basically have the entire RPG world at your fingertips. And you can use any kind of adventure, any kind of world you want. But if you're playing with iDebt and you're playing, you know, the, the Fringeworthy system, the way it was intended to be played, uh, you're going to run into conflicts with the way the ad- adventures take to get into. But there are ways around every one of those. And I think I, I really hope that we've covered just about every kind of way to, to get your, your players into just about any kind of adventure that's happening. I mean, I don't, I don't think we mentioned anything about uh, a spy modules or whatever, but, you know, you can use any of the techniques that we've talked about. Uh, missing people or switching bodies or anything like that. And, and it's that easy. You know, you could just extrapolate from those. Uh, and then that, that just opens up a whole world of things that you can do. Uh, and, and the better job you do at it, the more likely the players are to return to that world again and do more there. So you, you really want to do a good job if you're talking about something like AD&D where there's tons and tons and tons of modules. Uh, I believe Palladium has a bunch of stuff as well. Or, or any game system that has a ton of modules, you definitely want to do a good job and take a lot of notes because you're going to want the players to return there. And I think that wraps it up for this episode of the TriTech Podcast. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. This is Amber. It's all fun and games until the DM rolls a one. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. And this is Paul. When you remove the pin, Mr. Grenade is no longer your friend. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.